Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP as we ease on into WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. Oola! No, that I didn't stub my toe. Rather, Oola is the name of a new movement that I want to tell you about and how to live an Oola life. And to help us do that, I'm pleased to welcome Troy Amdal, the Oola guru. And do I have Dave Braun as well? Yep, I'm right here. Dave Braun, the Oola seeker. Okay, guys, what is Oola? What is Oola? It, it started about four years ago. Um, a buddy and I were just going through life together. We used to go back and start back in 1997, and we would go to the Hard Rock in Vegas and talk about life. We'd sit on the floor, and on the floor in front of us, we'd put these seven stacks of note cards. And instead of just... Like growing up in sports, you set goals, or in business, or even for money, you set some goals. But instead of that, we define success differently. We had seven sets of goals, goals for our business, goals for money, but also goals for family and goals for fun. And what do we want to do in this next 365 days as far as fitness, finance, family, field, which is your career, faith, friends, and fun. And we uh, both achieved success young. Uh, Dave, the seeker. Uh, went through a season where he lost everything. And we got back together and said, what happened? And he had drifted from these principles, and he got his ULA back. And once he got his ULA back, we said, we need to share these simple principles with the world. So uh, we went to a lake cabin in northern Minnesota and wrote a, wrote a book that uh, was self-published, and it just took off. Okay. I'm fascinated by something that you two guys have in common. And that is, you both grew up in the cold climates here of the United States. Dave <laughs> yeah, I'm North- really, yeah, I'm from a really, really small town in North Dakota. And so when Dr. Troy talked about this Vegas trip, I grew up like small farm town kid. And it was it was literally, he said, let's go to Vegas. And like he was saying, it was 1997. I'm like, this is crazy. I've never been on an airplane before. Like, I, I'm, I'm excited to go to Vegas. I really had to get this approved with my wife, like how this is all going to go down. And it wasn't quite the trip to Vegas like most guys probably take. It was exactly what Troy was saying. It's like we get to Vegas, and I was stressed out from my first flight, and we get into a taxi, and he says, we're here to basically start working on um, balancing and growing our life in these seven areas. And like Dr. Troy said, I left Vegas. I had this plan in my hand for the first time, not just business goals or not just goals for sports, but goals for life. And when I went home, I just remember feeling like so excited that, okay, this is what I want for my family, and this is what I want for my finances, and you break finances down to, this is what I'm going to do for my income and my debt and budgeting, and I, I just never stepped outside my life and looked at my life like that, because you're always in, like, the business of life. You're always just working on, you know, making payments, and at that time, for me, going to school and being married and raising kids and not even looking and thinking about how you want to do that. Well, I started finding success relatively quickly by following this plan that I had drawn out. And the next year we'd do the same thing and another plan. The next year we'd do the same thing. And by the time I was in my late 20s, I basically had what you would call the American dream of living in a nice house. And I was married and I had four kids at the time and my wife was pregnant with a fifth and I making good money and having fun and I was working out and being fit. I had all seven areas of my life working and going in the right direction. And, you know, I just, Dr. Troy moved overseas, and I drifted from these principles. And like he said, I found when he said I found myself at the bottom, like I found myself at the bottom. And this was in around 2010. I was going through a divorce, 
living in a motel, losing everything, cars being repossessed, driving my mom's crappy old car, and reconnecting with the principal's rule. I called Dr. Shore. I said, just help me out. Like, how do I get out of this hole that I got myself in? He said, you need to re tap into ULA. You need to re-tap into getting outside your life and looking at where you were. And I looked at my life and I'm like, okay, it's, it's bad in all seven areas. And that's really the truth. We go down to the deep down, the deep definition of ULA, it's balancing growing life in seven areas, not three, not four, not five, but seven areas. It's your fitness, your finances, your family life, your field, which is your career, faith, friends, and fun. And at that time, I said, you know what, if this if recapping into this and writing these goals and starting to follow my plan digs me out of the bottom, gets me out of this motel, gets me out of my mom's beat-up old car, and gets my life back on track, we're going to write a book about this. And that's exactly what happened. We're at Dr. Roy's cabin, yeah, way up in northern Minnesota. Luckily, it was the summer and not the winter because we wouldn't have been writing. We'd probably been trying to stay warm by a fireplace. But it was the summer. It was a beautiful day on the lake. And Troy said, your life is better. And you said, if this works for me, we're going to share this with the world. How do you want to do that? And we started outlining it, and three days later, we had a book. And in that book, like Dr. Troy said, the rest is kind of history, or not history, but leads us to today and leads us into this conversation we're having right now. Troy, how did you become the Ula guru, though? Well, truth be told, I'm seeking Ula as much as anybody else, but um, the way the book is, the first book started was Dave was at the bottom, and these principles we're talking about, I've lived my whole life um, as far as, like, looking at your life not just almost redefining what, what success looks like. I think as a society and as a culture, we're, we're taught that if you drive this car, live in this neighborhood, and look like this, you'll, you, that's what success is. I grew up in a very middle-class house with my dad working three jobs to put a roof over our heads and you know a trip every four years. And I saw how hard he worked. I had an older brother, eight years older than me, who did the same. Um, to provide for his family, and I'm like, I definitely want, I have some material and financial goals for sure that I want for my life, but at the same time, I have four kids, I want to spend some time with my kids, and I want to take care of myself physically, so this is something, these are the principles of a balanced life that I've I've lived in, and even goal setting since high school, I remember in high school writing down that I want to retire debt-free at 40, well, I was in high school, I didn't even go to college, or, but I just knew that I had a vision for what I wanted in my life early, and then every year I would take steps to go make that happen. Okay, guys, there's an old saying, though. Man plans, which is something you've both done, and God laughs. Yeah, this, that, that's a, in, in Ula, it's the exact same way. There's, there's seven Fs of Ula. Those are the seven key areas, fitness, finance, family, field, your career, faith, friends, and fun. But we say there's a secret eighth F of Ula, uh, and that's flexibility. And uh, that never, that happens in life. Uh, Dave's had a plan for his life and it went sideways. And that is really the point of looking at your life periodically. Now, it's just not something you do once in high school. Uh, we would go to Vegas. We would step out of the craziness of life two days a, a year and just get outside of our lives and look at our lives um, two days a year. And then we talk to each other once a month because you'd have to course correct as life happens because you know that as well as we do. That, yeah, you have a plan, but things change. But the, but the thing is, if you don't have a plan, by default, that's a plan. And at least you have some direction of where you're going. And the cool thing the cool thing is, Peter, is that's based upon your unique gifts and abilities. And that's the other fun part about ULA. It's like whatever goals and dreams you have, you go chase those every year. 
So really, I'm amazed that you two could go to Las Vegas with all the bright lights and glitter and noise and not pay any attention to any of that. How did you? Oh, we had fun too. (laughs) We had fun too, but we, we did actually thinking back to when it started, uh, we would literally sit in a corner on the floor with these little three by five note cards and seven stacks. And that's really how it started. Everyone asks, it's a, it's like a movement. Now people see every Ula tattoos and Ula hats and they're like, where did this start? It started on the floor in Vegas with a bunch of guys just sitting around wanting to be better guys run better businesses, make more money, have better families, have time for fun, take care of themselves physically, and that's really the start of ULA. Now, you guys have a new book, though, ULA for Women. What's that about? You know, it started with we when ULA came out, ULA Fine Balance, Unbalanced World, our original book a couple years back. Um, we we li- literally, we in his lake cabin, we're thinking, okay, so we got this manuscript done. Let's make a book. Let's see what happens. Just like two buddies. Like, it was never a plan. Like, let's go share with the world and, 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 and see where it goes. You know, it's like you, you plan and God laughs. We were planning on selling 47 books, and that's it. Dr. Troy's in retirement. So that's Dr. Troy's plan. He's like, well, no matter what, I'm not coming out of retirement. And you can go do whatever you want with Ula, but after 47 books and no one else buys another one, you'll kind of see where this goes, and you'll be just in your same career. And I'm like, that's cool, because my, my, I said, God, if this works for me, when I was at the bottom, I said, God, if this works for me, we're going to share this with the world. We wrote our book. We did our job. We're done. We never have to do this again. We're not going to do any of this kind of crazy radio stuff or ever do, like, go on TV or ever speak in front of audiences. So that was cool. It was a fun run. It was a great weekend. We wrote a book. This will be a great time. And as we put this book out there, and, and about two months later, it was literally two months, and Troy calls me, and he goes, do you know uh, Mary Johnson? And she's like from the East Coast. And I'm like, no, I have like a huge family. I have like over 100 cousins, but I don't think there's a Mary Johnson in there. And he goes, well, there's a Mary Johnson that bought our book, and we need to find out how she knows of Ula. And I, he goes, call your mom and see if, see if you're related to her. So I called my mom, and she was like, nope, we don't have a Mary Johnson in the family. So I called Troy back, and I said, someone just bought our book that we don't know. And the next month there was, 10 people and the next month there was hundreds of people and then there was thousands of people and what happened was like we need to like maybe start a facebook page and maybe have a community where these people that are buying the book on amazon can go and like connect and we can connect to these people and if they have questions about living a new life we need to help them in if it's faith or finance whatever it is and after a couple years there's over 300,000 people on our facebook page and a lot of books sold, and like Dr. Troy said, hats and tattoos. And we said, okay, we started a Facebook page, and we do a two-day event called Ula Palooza that you guys wanted, and we made you guys hats. What do you want next? And we kept hearing over and over and over. We want a book specifically for women. And we're two dudes going, well, that's something we're never going to do. <laughs> so sounds great. But if we write a book, it's going to be 200 pages, and you open up, it's going to be blank. So what do we know about women? I have four sisters, four daughters. We start to justify he has two sisters, two daughters. Maybe we know something about women. We're two dudes. Maybe we do. Um, but when we really looked at it, we, we didn't want to write this book. And we were just looking at over and over hearing this message. And what we looked and what we realized is that the majority of the people that were following us on Facebook, the majority of the people that were buying the Ula Fine Balance Unbalanced World, the initial book, were women. And these women were what we found out just a natural multitaskers in life. 
and they're trying to balance kids and career, and they're trying to find balance in their world. And we said, okay, we, we need to do this. We need to commit to this. And we teamed up with a, a woman, a female author, who's written multiple New York Times bestselling books. She's an amazing author. And then we started to collect stories of women from Facebook, women uh, from events that we've met, women that on social media, women that have put stickers on our ULA bus, which we haven't talked about yet, which, which I know we're going to get to because it's like one of the, the coolest parts of the tour. And we started collecting these stories, and there's just amazing stories under the the seven S of Ula under the other categories of Ula under the other, what we talk about in Ula called Ula blockers and Ula accelerators of women who just worked hard to overcome uh, ordinary women just breaking through and doing extraordinary things. And we started compiling these stories together and it was an amazing pulling it all together. Just an amazing book of women's stories, helping women balance and grow their lives. And that's how the book Ula for Women came out. And to find your Facebook page, what do you want us to do? Uh, go to facebook.com slash Ula Life, O-O-L-A-L-I-F-E. And then actually the whole backstory, which is interesting, is on the website, ulalife.com. That'll lead to the Facebook page as well. All right. Now, you mentioned the Ula Tour. What's that about? And what's this bus? Yeah, so this is this is what we're on right now. Um, we we have a mission. We, we found this. Ula took off, and there's something about connecting people to their dreams that's powerful. We get so busy in the day-to-day of going from point A to point B, from work to home to task to task, that you lose connection to, to what you want in life in, in all of these seven key areas. And we, we get asked to speak a lot at live events, and at some events we have people put a pen to paper and declare positive change in their life, just one thing they're going to do in the next 365 days to make their life a little better. And... There's power in that, and we saw the power not only at the event, but also six months later when someone paid off a credit card or they healed their marriage or they lost 20 pounds, whatever it was for them that they needed to do to move forward. And then we had this crazy idea because we had an event in Vegas. We do have an event in Vegas called Palooza, but it sells out quickly, and it's actually, quite frankly, fairly expensive because it's a small venue. And we're like, that doesn't reach everybody. That doesn't reach every person. That reaches an affluent few can fly to Vegas and come to an event. So we thought of what is an icon of freedom? If you're free of the things that trouble you and hold you back, like debt and toxic relationships and health issues and lack of purpose, what is that to us, the ULA guys? Like, what is that to us? And to us, it was an instant, easy answer. It's a 1970 vintage VW surf bus. So we had this crazy idea about a year and a half ago. We bought a surf bus that was bright blue, and we, we took our sons, our youngest sons, and we went to Southern California in San Diego. And we started in a park in San Diego, and we had these little bags of stickers all color-coded for the seven areas of life and a bag of Sharpies. And we started talking to people on the road. And we said, what do you want for your life in these seven areas? And one by one, these people would grab us, look at these stickers, grab a sticker and a Sharpie, and, and write down the change they were going to make in their life, and they would slap it on the side of our VW surf bus. And we worked our way up on just that trip, which started with a blue bus. By the time we went up the PCH and we're in San Francisco, that bus was covered in dreams. And the stories we heard on that one trip, that one trip changed what we thought even about ULA and the power of ULA. We we had our boys in, if, if you can just picture a 1970 VW surf bus, no power steering, no air conditioning, uh, going downhill, it's wide open at 55 miles an hour. 
I mean, we need breaks. So we took a break south of Sam, Santa Barbara at a, at a beach, and it was about sunset. And our at this point, our bus was just speckled with, with dreams. It wasn't covered. And there was a beautiful family, husband, wife, two kids, and a, a professional photographer taking pictures at sunset. And we thought, oh, they must be taking Christmas card pictures or something. It's how beautiful. Our boys wanted to go play in the ocean and get out of the bus for a while. Dave and I were just hanging out. And like like always, people walk up to the bus and they go, you know, what up with a bus? And we say, hey, we're just, we're going, we're, we're one bus, two guys going to all 50 states collecting one million dreams. That's what we're doing. They go, that is the coolest thing ever. Can we put some dreams on the bus? We say, of course. So they gr- the, the mom grabs a Sharpie. And she puts it on a family sticker, and she goes, I want to be strong enough through my stage four cancer to see my girls become women. Mm. And we're like, we got in the bus, and it was pretty quiet up the PCH for about 20 minutes. And we're like, wow, um, there's something to what we're doing, and we need to do more of this. And that's what we're doing right now. We, we started this leg of the tour uh, in Palm Beach, Florida, four days ago. Right at this moment, um, we're already up to Nashville, and we're working our way through the lower part of the U.S., and we'll end this leg in San Diego. Okay. And are you coming to Pennsylvania? We are coming to Pennsylvania. We just don't know when. Talk about flexibility. Um, this this tour is driven by – there's certain key things, we, we like media things we need to be at, but a lot of times it's driven by social media, and someone said – I just, we just got a notification some small town in Colorado wants to do a police escort with the ULA bus through town and collect dreams. So we're going to go do that. Uh, yesterday, we were called to this beautiful barbecue joint in rural Georgia. And we just went and had barbecue and hung out with the owners who've owned it for like 30 years and talked about their dreams, and they put dreams on the bus. So this is really about meeting people where they are. We've been to Pennsylvania uh, speaking before. But we need to get the bus up there, so be watching for it at ulalife.com. All right. Now, guys, I need to run a few commercials, so stay with me. And when we come back in just a bit, we're going to talk a little bit more about ULA and how it happens here on 94 WIP. The WIP Times 719. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. I'm here with the ULA men, Dave Braun, the ULA seeker, and Troy Amdahl, the ULA guru. And we're talking about a whole way of taking a look at your life and how to improve it. All right, guys, are you ever too old to see Kula? Not at all. Uh, in fact, uh, we recently had an event in Vegas, and we go through the process of these seven areas, and there are all kinds of people in the room, and we get to this point where we're teaching people this, this strategic way to set goals in a way that you can achieve them. So it's a kind of a technical part of the weekend of just like, how to set them specifically, and they're measurable, and all this technical part of goal setting. And we had people set three goals in each of the seven areas just to learn how to properly set goals. And this gal, I would say, what do you think, Dave, 85? 85, raises her hand fairly aggressively over in the corner, like, come answer my question. So I go over there. We call her Hannah's grandma because I don't know her name, but she's so sweet. She comes over and she grabs me like my grandma would by my shirt and pulls me down, and she goes, you know what? I have 28 goals, and you want 21, and you're just going to have to be okay with that because I have stuff to do. Um, so at we, we reference Hannah's grandma a lot because at any age, uh, you have purpose and passion, and just go make that happen. 
what's next after the tour is done, and will it ever ever be done? I don't know. I mean, this this is we're just having fun. Uh, we're having fun, you know, getting out on the road, meeting people. The the tour, the dream tour for us of all the things we do is the most fun thing we do. Just getting out and meeting people who have no idea what Ula is. And just reconnecting them to their dreams. Even on this leg, Peter, like when we were coming, we started in West Palm and worked our way over to Sarasota, Florida. So through that middle part of Texas, or excuse me, middle, middle part of Florida, two two nights ago, we were just rolling at night trying to get over to Sarasota. And you can't miss our bus. So when we come through Pennsylvania, you'll, I mean, it's a, it's a colorful VW surf bus full of handwritten stickers. You can't miss it. Everyone looks at it. And we, you have to pass us because we only go like 45 miles an hour. And this guy in a truck rolls up alongside of us, hardworking guy in a work shirt with a big beard. He rolls down his window and signals for us to roll down our window. And he goes, what up with his word? And we're like, it's Ula. And he's like, "What? what's Ula? And we're like, it comes from Ula-la because that's how your life feels. And if you're killing it in all of these seven key areas. And he's like, love it. And he rolls past us. Dave and I are actually on Facebook Live at the time, just killing time with people who follow Ula for like an hour. About 20 minutes later, on this rural Florida road, this guy's got his truck parked alongside the road. He's in the road, waving us down with arms in the air, like almost like you see when someone's in an accident or something. We're on Facebook Live, and Dave's going, I think we're going to get shot. <laughs> um, and we pull over, and this guy walks to us, and he goes, I need to know more. And we're like, what do you mean? He goes, what is, what are you, what are you guys, what is this? We're like, we're just collecting dreams, man. And he goes, like, like skeptical, like we're selling him something. And we're like, we're just meeting people and saying, hey, we're two guys that we believe we can change the world with this one word. And all we do is reconnect people to one thing that will make their life better. And if you make your life better, the people around you will be inspired to do better and so on and so on. And that's how we can change the world of the word. What, what's a dream you have? And his name was Travis. And he looked at me, and big, burly dude just started crying on the side of a road in rural Florida. And he's like, I have no idea. He said, I have no idea what my purpose is. I said, Travis, that sounds like, and Dave was catching this on Facebook Live. And he said, I said, Travis, I think, I think you found your goal, and that's to find your purpose. And we hand him a yellow faith sticker and a black Sharpie. And he wrote, find my purpose in life, and slapped it on our bus. And there's something about that that I don't think there will be an end to that in what we do. We'll write books. Our first book, anybody who's written a book, was self-published. And we thought we'd sell 42 copies. Out of the back of a VW bus, we sold 128,000 copies of our first book. And then we got the attention of the original publishers of Chicken Soup for the Soul. And it's been a while, if anyone remembers Chicken Soup for the Soul, but it was a big deal a while back. They said, we love what you guys are doing. We want to do a series on this, um, which is why on Tuesday, actually, Ula for Women is released everywhere, every Barnes & Noble, every airport, everywhere. So we went from, like, self-published to full distribution. So we will be writing, too, because we signed a three-book deal with them. All right. Now I want to say thank you to Dave Braun and Troy Amdahl, the Ula men. Ula la! Go out and seek that for yourself. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And make sure I hear about it when you come to Pennsylvania. You won't miss us. Look for us. I will. All right. See you. See you, Peter. Thanks. Bye.
Thank you. And it's Conver- it's WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. More after these messages. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. And if you're looking for a good read, have I got one for you. I'm pleased to welcome here author William Christie, his new book, A Single Spy. Good morning, William Christie. Good morning. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, William, your book, what's the essence of it? This is the plot. Well, it's a, it's a spy novel set during World War II, but instead of the Americans and the British that we're used to, it deals with the espionage war between the Russians and the Germans, uh, specifically a German plot to assassinate Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin during the Tehran Conference of 1943. Now, that certainly would have changed the world had it happened. Was there really a plot? Well, yes, and this is where the history kind of diverges a little bit and where, you know, a a fiction writer can take over. Um, There was actually a German plot called Operation Long Jump uh, to assassinate the big three, as they called them. Uh, Now where the history kind of splits, uh, Otto Skorzeny, who was Hitler's favorite commando, survived the war and he claimed that he had done the planning for Operation Long Jump, but never carried it out. Uh, the Russians, on the other hand, claimed that the plot was exposed to them by one of their officers who was a mole inside German military intelligence, and that they wiped out the assassination team in Tehran. Hmm. How did you find this issue? How did you discover the plot? I, I discovered it years ago. I'm a, I'm a history, total history buff, and I was reading uh, Professor John Erickson's history of the war on the Eastern Front. It's called Stalin's War with Germany. And in, in about a thousand pages of book, there's basically one page dealing with Operation Long Jump, and Erickson basically says it's a it's a staple of Russian intelligence history, you know, the heroic Russian intelligence officers of the of the Great Patriotic War, but he could never nail down whether it had actually taken place or not. And uh, it, it was such a tantalizing idea that it kind of went into my notebook until the time that it came to write the novel. Now, tell me about your hero of the book. Well, the hero of the book, uh, he's the single spy. He's a, a Russian Alexei who we meet as a teenager and he's trained by Russian intelligence as a spy. He's inserted into Nazi Germany before the war, and when the war begins, he manages to join the German army as an intelligence officer, uh, a classic Russian mole. Is he based on anybody in reality or based on you? Well, no, not, well, not really based on me. He's, he's, definitely, he's definitely a survivor, and... Um, when I was doing my research uh, of the period, I decided that I needed to bring my spy in young to have the reader get a look at him from uh, the famine and the Stalin's terror of the 1930s in the Soviet Union and then bring him into Nazi Germany and have him be our witness to, to Nazi Germany uh, He's a survivor. He's uh, he he starts off as a, as a thief, 
but this was not untypical of the Great Famine in the Soviet Union in, that began in 1933. Uh, one of the characters in the book says that the worst thing about famine is that the first to die are the simple people who do what they're told, the ones that would never steal food, lie, or break the law. And the survivors are somewhat different. Now, we're talking here on WIP Sunday with author William Christie, his new novel, A Single Spy. Now, William, I need you to stay with me. i got to run a few commercials. Sure, I'd be glad to. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 7.36. And we're back. It's conversation on WIP Sunday. A little confused there, folks. WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, William Christie, author, his new novel, A Single Spy. All right. In the book, William, mm-hmm. is the author, is the hero, Alexei, motivated more by his own issues or the issues of nationalism and wanting to serve the Soviet Union? Well, in, in the Russian, in the historical Russian accounts of this, he, he's, he's typically the, you know, the young communist Russian spy hero. And I really wasn't interested in that. Uh, I was interested in a young man who's an orphan. He's a survivor, and he is basically captured and caught up uh, with Russian intelligence, and through a series of associations from his youth and the fact that he speaks German, uh, they make the decision to insert him uh, into Nazi Germany as a spy. And, of course, this is what the Russians have always done and probably will always do. They have an extraordinary amount of patience. They will send they will send a spy into another country and expect that it may take 10 or 20 years for them to develop into something into into a position where they can where they can give them some where they can give them some information and uh alexei in the novel uh is you know is working for russian intelligence but of course russian intelligence always works on a threat uh you know if you if you don't pass spy school you're going to disappear. If you don't serve us, uh, we'll kill you. Uh, you have to prove your loyalty. You have to betray someone. You have to have blood on your hands. Uh, if you go to the West and you decide you like life there, well, we can always reach out and get our hands on you because we've done that to many other people who've betrayed us before. And then once he is in Nazi Germany, of course, he's in a position where uh, if the Russians feel as if he's betraying them, he could be killed by them. And, of course, if the Germans ever find out that he is a Russian spy, he's going to end up uh, on a meat hook in the basement of Gestapo headquarters. So he's continually caught between the two sides trying to navigate his way through World War II. Would have driven a lesser person crazy. It would, well, you see, that's, the, that's the, the great thing about spies, and it's kind of the reasons why authors like to write spy novels, is that spies are not normal people. They're not normal, stable personalities. Intelligence agencies always look for people with the characteristics of con artists for spies, someone who can lie easily and assume a different identity. 
but all but unlike say uh, a classic sociopath someone who responds to orders who can work into work in a in a stable setting and you know as you might understand that's a very very small percentage of the population but it makes it really interesting to write about absolutely now you take a fact and play with it what many people in the fiction industry are called faction as a genre of literature mm-hmm. fact in fiction is that easy to do hard to do well what i wanted to do was i wanted to write a thriller and it is a thriller it's not history but I wanted to make every historical detail accurate. And there are actual historical persons in the book, and I tried to make them that they're there at the time and the place that they were at that time and at that place, and I tried to make them accurate as to what their real personalities were and everything else. And uh, it it was difficult, um, but it was also uh, it was also a great deal of fun, and particularly appropriate for us to have this interview today because, among other things, today is the anniversary of Adolf Hitler's death. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, last Tuesday, when the book was published, it was uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and in one of the chapters of the book, Alexei is uh, it's before World War II, but he is a witness in 1938 to Kristallnacht, which was the, the 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 most major government-sponsored riots against the Jews in Germany. Now. This is really your first foray into historical fiction. You've written other kind of books, haven't you? Yes, I wrote, I've written mainly uh, military and uh, contemporary thrillers, and this was my this is my first uh, my first venture into uh, historical novels, and uh, I've enjoyed it enormously. And the book has been getting a great reaction. How different though is it from more being more contemporary? In in a contemporary thriller, you have to be accurate, but you're creating the framework of your own story. Uh, in a historical novel, you, you know you don't want to. You, you're not you're not writing the man in the high castle, so to speak. You're writing about World War II, so you don't want to write alternate history. You want to write something that's accurate, but you're also taking a specific incident. And you're, you're, you're fictionalizing. You're fictionalizing it yourself. Uh, and, of course, uh, Operation Long Jump in the Tehran Conference is the, uh, was, the, was the perfect opportunity to do that because of the, uh, the, the confusion as, in history as far as what actually took place, the Germans saying one thing, the Russians saying the other. Um, of course, this was the first opportunity for Roosevelt Churchill and Stalin to uh, sit down together face to face in World War II, and uh, of course the the Germans found out about it and they considered it a golden opportunity to uh, to try to disrupt the to try to disrupt the course of World War II. So within within the context of that history, you can uh, you can you can make a really interesting thriller. Absolutely. Now, though, given the Germans say one thing and the Russians say another, do you have your own theory about the Tehran Conference and the assassination plot? Well, you know, it, it's it's interesting because the Russian sources 
you know, the Russian, it was always, you know, a great heroic story that the Russians, the, that they thwarted, they thwarted the assassination attempt. And the Germans, of course, said it never happened. And there's all various stories about it. And once the Russian intelligence officers started getting old and the Soviet Union fell, they fell free to write their memoirs. And uh, a gentleman called Matrokin uh, walked off with, he was the KGB archivist. He handled their archives, and he defected to the British and, you know, came out with maybe a, with thousands of pages of handwritten notes from the Russian archives. And, you know, it, it was a pretty comprehensive history of Russian intelligence from the 1930s on to the 1980s. And there's little teases about the Tehran conference that, that something happened there, uh, and you know it's not quite clear what did. Um, the Russians, of course, say that they thwarted the plot. The the British intelligence has always maintained that the Russians basically said that there was a plot in order to get Franklin Roosevelt to stay in the Soviet embassy during the conference, because the U.S. embassy was on the outskirts of Tehran, and the Soviet embassy and the British embassy are literally right across the street from each other. So the British say that the Russians just made up a plot uh, in order to get Roosevelt to stay in the Soviet embassy, uh, where they could bug, his, bug the rooms of himself and his entourage and uh, you know root through their papers and everything else. And Stalin was very, very well informed about the American position in the conference. Uh, so whether it did or whether it didn't, I don't know. You'll have to read the book and see what I have to say about it. What's your next book? You're going to go back to today, or you're going to stay with history? Well, my next book, which I just delivered to my publisher, is another espionage novel set uh, in the World War II period, but it's set in America in 1941 before Pearl Harbor. And that's really all I can say about it right now, because the publisher hasn't really hasn't really read it and commented on it and everything else. Well, you're making me wonder what those Japanese were up to, but that's just my <laughs> supposition. <laughs> what do you want us to get from the book? Well, if if it makes someone more interested in history, uh, to go back and look at what happened, because. Uh, not only is World War II very popular, you know, Band of Brothers, the greatest generation and all that, World War II, you know, are, is an echo of our relations with the Russians today, our relations with Europe today. It's, uh, it's the culmination of really the, 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 the sad history of Europe uh, in the 1930s and the 1940s and it's also the rise of America as the great power that we have, that we are today. And uh, uh, everything that happened there is still in, emotionally in Russians and Americans and everything else. And, you know, it, Vladimir Putin, for example, is, is the classic Russian child of World War II when they lost 15 million soldiers, and uh, there's that that insecurity 
of you know we can be invaded even though the, the no one is going to invade russia there's still that feeling of we can be invaded again the world is an uncertain place this is how we confront the world we don't have any allies we only have we only have adversaries we may have friends temporarily uh or we have vassals that do what we say and uh and and we still do we still deal with that today and I'd like to say thank you to William Christie, his new book, A Single Spy, an excellent read. Thank you, William. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, my reactions, his reactions, everybody's reactions. I know I'll be listening. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and Ann Tideman-Solomon, my dear wife and associate producer. Couldn't do the shows without you. You make it all possible. Finally, go out there and find an ooh life. See you soon.